0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of The Remnant Podcast in our um, amazingly uh, full of potential uh, offices for The Dispatch. Uh, normally, I record at AEI, but uh, uh, the studio was booked, and we're experimenting with uh, equipment straight out of the Frankenstein movies. Lots of electrodes and diodes and giant horseshoes-shaped Levers, but that's not important right now. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Dispatch, The Dispatch, which you can find at thedispatch.com and Dispatch Media. And we have, and today's episode is brought to you by Mrs. Fields Cookies. Uh, more about them in a little bit. But, uh, right now we're very happy, or I should say, I'm very happy to have Sarah Isger, uh, who is one of the, uh, the few of the proud, uh, new writers editors, podcast hosts at The Dispatch. Welcome, Sarah.
1: Thank you. I'm really hoping the potential for this office will include chairs at some point. I don't know if you've noticed.
0: Chairs would be good. Um, (laughs) There's lots of things that would be good. Um, uh, We also found out, uh, just just, as Winston Churchill said when his robe fell off um, right before FDR entered the room, I have nothing to hide from the listeners (laughs) of The Remnant. Uh, um, We found out that the room that we're going to use as a podcast studio abuts the women's bathroom. So every time you hear a flush, uh, it might show up on podcasts. So that's something we've got to deal with too. There would have
1: been a certain je ne sais quoi branding.
0: I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, as I was saying, you know, listeners are often very forgiving of that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: and I don't want to be gendery, but like, thank God it's the women's bathroom.
0: Well, so I, that's an important question. I was talking about that with our, you know, crack tech squad. Uh <laughs>
1: Please tell me what you and the tech squad thought <laughs> about the women's bathroom well, flushing.
0: So, do you actually think there was more or less flushing in men's bathrooms or women's bathrooms?
1: Oh, clearly more flushing, but you might not get other noises.
0: Fair. Okay. Fair. 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 Okay. Yes. But I, mean, I,
1: I live with a man uh-huh. and... You know, I just think if you were going to have to listen to this has really gone in a whole, yeah, like, an well, actual potty humor direction.
0: Yeah, which is not new for this podcast, um, this podcast uh, So anyway, uh, you, why don't we, tell us a little bit about yourselves, your, you know, about yourself. Uh, I wasn't trying to do a...
1: I was born at 11 p.m. Um, it was a, a brisk... November day. I said a little.
0: About yeah, it. Oh, okay. okay. So,
1: uh, I grew up in uh, about an hour outside of Houston, and I'm very Texan. That is uh-huh. that is a big part of who I am. I went to Northwestern undergrad because I did not know that humans survived in temperatures that cold. And I know uh-huh. that sounds weird, but growing up in Texas my whole life, I, I knew colder. I didn't yeah, yeah. understand that as a concept. But in reality, um, I did not have socks. I did not have a coat. Uh-huh. My dad did buy me a coat, um, when we arrived, but not socks. Uh-huh. Um, and I did not realize, again, you're gonna think this is dumb. I did not realize that socks really do play an important role in keeping all of you warm.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh, that's true, they do.
1: Right, yeah. I just thought, like, my feet are cold. Well, obviously, that's the case. But, like, really, it's a whole-body thermal situation mm-hmm. socks mm-hmm. do for you. <laughs> so now, like, all I want for Christmas are socks. It's, like, a very important part of my life uh-huh. um, now. So, that's... so you're, like,
0: one of these kids from the Depression who, <laughs> for the rest of their lives, just had this weird thing about canned goods and government yeah. cheese. They Wait, thought it was, said, like, really great.
1: Like, at Northwestern, you know? Yeah, okay, <laughs> all
0: right.
1: Uh... You know, what we lack in football, we make up in not having socks. So, uh, went to Harvard Law School. Another cold place, but not nearly as cold, Uh actually. And was already doing campaigns, like, before then, by then. My first campaign was John Cornyn's 2002, his first race for Senate. Uh Uh-huh. And I lived on a mattress in a friend's sorority house. That was a whole life experience. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um,
0: so you were never a lawyer person.
1: So I clerked after law school on the Fifth Circuit uh-huh. for Edith Jones. Uh-huh. Some of your listeners will be familiar with her greatest hits, of which there are several. We can we can do that later. Uh-huh. Um, so that's a real lawyer job. And I took the bar. I am a licensed attorney.
0: Uh-huh. And what state did you where, where, Texas, what? Okay. obviously,
1: because uh-huh. uh, it's a three day bar, and I wanted to make sure I took the you know the most bar I could uh-huh. get for my money. It includes oil and gas law. Excellent. Um, which Harvard did not teach. Uh-huh. Nice, nice.
0: <laughs> is there a lot, when you finish, when they say time's up, is there a lot of yeehaw and shooting in the air?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, the, because I knew nothing about oil and gas law and, and didn't really study because I was working on a campaign at the time, I actually just applied the drink your milkshake rule uh-huh. from there will be blood, like, to the bar exam. uh uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so I passed, but I would not hire me for your oil and gas litigation needs.
0: Fortunately, I wasn't planning on that.
1: That's good. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you own any mineral rights.
0: Well, we're very ambitious here at the Dispatch, so <laughs> I'm not ruling it out. But do you know Adam White? At, yeah, of course. Okay, so yeah. Adam at, at the American Enterprise Institute, um, who's one with him and Ilya Shapiro are the two lead lawyer-type person thing people on this. Things, yes. Yes. Uh, what is it that Homer says in The Simpsons? Pass me the thing scoop food with? And Marge (laughs) says, you mean a spoon, homie? Uh, I'm having a real hard time with words today. It's really a problem. (laughs) Well, it's good
1: we're doing a podcast then. That's
0: right. Um, But uh, I believe Adam started in like maritime, coastal, and resource extraction law.
1: I think that's right.
0: Yeah, so if I have, if we have those needs, we can go to Adam for that and we can use your view for all the other- All the other lo- stuff. The whole other legal waterfront.
1: You know, little known but true, when the Fifth Circuit sits in Admiralty, they do change the seal that is above the court- Is to that the true? the Fifth Circuit Admiralty seal. That's awesome, <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. Um, I never, we did not have an Admiralty case in my year, but we were all very disappointed by that because we wanted the Admiralty seal because clerking is a very fulfilling job, but not an exciting one. And so that was going to be really the peak excitement.
0: You know, have you ever been to one of those swearing in ceremonies at HHS?
1: At HHS? Yeah. That feels very specific.
0: So do you know Tevi Troy? Yeah. Yeah. He'll love me bringing this up. Uh, He's an avid (laughs) podcast listener, and he was the number two guy at HHS. And the... I don't even remember what it's called. But you know the Surgeon General of the United States? Yeah. There's a whole, like, hierarchy of other uniformed people. Oh. The National Health Service or something. It's like... Uh, it's, it's not, it's quasi-military. It's, it's a little creepy.
1: Commerce has, like, a, the, the ocean, something about the oceanography stuff. They have a uniformed, non-military, like, non-armed uniformed corps or something. So, I, I do find those things pretty fascinating, actually. And so,
0: like, Tevi, when he was at HHS, he, apparently he didn't have to do this, but he wanted to, um, for reasons he'll have to explain when he finally comes on this podcast, uh, go through the... Are you listening, Tevi? The, uh, he is, trust me. Uh, the, uh... Uh, he's very busy these days because he works for Jewel. But enough enough about that. Um, uh, uh, but he's got a book coming out, and he'll be on for that. But anyway, there was a whole, like, with whistles and military stuff. It was all very weird. Like I, when
1: Von Trapp calls his children in?
0: A little bit. Yeah. Um, mixed between the Von Trapp family and the discommodation ceremony when they kick Worf out of the Klingon Empire. And... It was all very, between, somewhere between those, those two. Christmas movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, so I love the quirky, weird stuff in government, like changing the seal for the admiralty law and all yeah. that kind of stuff. I think that's cool.
1: I think we have a good government for you then. I feel like we have many hidden quirks.
0: Yeah, but I want more of that kind of stuff. More quirks. I, want, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a passionate advocate for the Pope to have ninjas. I want all sorts of...
1: Okay, well that feels more than quirks.
0: Um, yeah, well, you yeah, know. Uh, would they be
1: secret ninjas, like they jump out at you? Oh uh, well, yeah. <laughs> okay, secret Pope ninjas is the name of my band now. <laughs>
0: okay, uh, but sort of, you know, like why why have we just assumed that the Westphalian nation state system that the only actors that are allowed to send troops into harm's way to do good things either have to wear blue helmets from the UN and therefore run away a lot or from nation states? Why the Pope used to have armies? Why can't he still have armies? And you know, I think
1: I, it's because of how the Pope used those.
0: I, I, I reject the idea that he used his armies any worse than, like, the kings of France and and the no, emperors of Germany and all that kind of
1: you, stuff. It'd be difficult, hard-pressed to make the worst case. Yeah.
0: See, the reason why we're doing all of this, what my father would call nano-talk, which is a degree smaller than small-talk, mm. uh, is uh, to make sure that we shake off all of the Remora-like pundits and columnists who are listening to this solely... To hear you comment about this Lisa Page stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Do you think if, they're
1: gone now? <laughs> I, I'm
0: thinking they're gone now. So uh, I
1: think we're alone now. Uh,
0: why don't we fast forward? Uh, you got, worked in the Trump administration. You worked for the Justice Department. Yes. Um, Basically,
1: during the two years of the Mueller investigation. For the
0: whole two years of the Mueller investigation, um, you laughed, you cried, um, you had a you, know, you really
1: needed to do both sometimes simultaneously.
0: Yeah. Uh, you you found out that it was the journey was more important than the destination. The friends
1: we made along the way. <laughs> that's right.
0: So um, why don't you talk a little bit about that in terms of stage setting? What your experiences were? What your I understand that you're, there's some things you're not allowed to talk about. That's fine, but sure. it'd be crazy not to talk to you about this a little bit. Sure. And, um,
1: the IG report is coming out Monday uh-huh. by all hopes and fears. Um,
0: so they say. They've been saying it's coming out Monday for a long... It's like waiting for Godot. But anyway, <laughs> I, let's let's say for the sake, sake of our minutes, it's, it's actually coming out.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, well, there's a variety of reasons that I think there's a good bet that it's coming out Monday at this point, because uh-huh. Horowitz has basically confirmed that he's testifying the next yeah. day. Uh, so, I mean, he could do it Monday at, you know, 10 p.m., but at some point, you got to have that happening. So... And that'll be the inspector general's report on the Russia investigation. Now, we've already had the inspector general's report about the struck and Page text. that was like a side report. Like, he does little spin-off reports, um, like Young Sheldon. Like, that's mm-hmm. the Young Sheldon report. Uh, and then we've obviously had the one on the Hillary Clinton investigation, because somehow in 2016, we had a presidential campaign where both candidates were under FBI investigation. Which, I'm not sure we spent enough time to sort of... Sitting back.
0: Letting that sink in.
1: And really taking a yeah. the deep aroma of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in. Uh, so, Lisa Page was uh, one of the very most senior people at the Department of Justice. Peter Strzok was as well. What happens, and sorry, we're going to have to back up to uh, August, well, July, August 2017, they, uh, well, Peter Strzok is on the Mueller team, and the inspector general is starting to look into things and stumbles across these text messages between the two of them on their work phones. All of this is relevant because the FBI's work phones, computers, everything else has a separate server system that keeps everything. Right. At least in theory, it did. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, your, your, more tuned-in listeners will remember that it actually, in this case, didn't keep everything, but that, it turned out, also was normal for the FBI. Uh Um, There were gaps in this pilot program that was going on at a few agencies across the government, but the idea was, right now, it's very hard to capture people's text messages, but because of the electronic records and FOIA and everything else, the goal is to get text messages so that everything that you do in government uh, is recorded for the public. It's, you know, every person in our executive branch works for the taxpayers and the public and that's our system of government. Yay, Article 2. Uh so, the Inspector General finds these text messages there's concerning things in it to him, he reports that to Robert Mueller and Rod Rosenstein who's the acting attorney general. Peter Struck is removed from the Mueller team. Uh Lisa Page is removed from overseeing it as one of the attorneys. And so begins the saga of the struck and page text. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to December. Congress now knows about the existence of these text messages and that the IG is looking into them. The inspector general pulls together the ones that are uh, what he deemed relevant, meaning that they are discussing work with potential bias, you know, the things that the inspector general was at that point looking into. That... Batch of text messages uh, was requested by Congress. And while the relationship between Congress, uh, the Republican-controlled Congress and the Sessions Department of Justice was um, tense at best Mm -hmm. during my two years, Mm -hmm. we gave them an enormous and unprecedented amount of stuff. um, And there was not any way or reason that we could withhold those text messages. So, the text messages are heading over to Congress. Mm -hmm. They are redacted by the career attorneys involved, and then the head of... From
0: the Uniform Redaction Squad. That's right. right. Uh (laughs) They come down like fire poles with... Sharpies.
1: I just like imagined a very quiet room with a bunch of overhead fluorescent lighting flickering as people sat with black Sharpies and redacted the personal.
0: Sort of like Tom Hanks and Joe versus the Volcano. I just, think it's exactly. Yeah, yeah, in the early parts.
1: Yeah, office space. Yeah, yeah. How many new genes come in this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: So anyway, redact- so, they were redacted. Yes, they're
1: redacted. And uh, the other career attorney who was the head of the Office of Privacy and Civil Liberties uh, gets a phone call from the highest career ranking attorney and says, does the Privacy Act apply to these text messages? I don't really think we want to go too far into the Privacy Act here. For those of you who are interested, you may want to call Adam White, previously mentioned. (laughs) Uh, There's a Supreme Court case on this. It's a balancing test, blah, blah, blah. But at the department, we have someone who is responsible for determining that balancing test for us. He is the director of the Office of Privacy and Civil Liberties, longtime career guy, good guy. So uh, after looking at all of it, and you know, some of the things he looked at were these were two senior-ranking FBI people on their work phones. There's literally warnings on your phone. It's like these are being kept. This is not private. You, this can be reviewed by people.
0: But they were using their work phones because they wanted to keep their spouses from seeing them.
1: Yeah, and we were talking about work. Right. Right. It's like it was a it was a mixed bag. Uh-huh. So um, he determines that uh, there is no Privacy Act claim on these text messages. So after the text messages go to Congress, there, you know, Congress at that point can release them to the public and do anything they want with them. Based on it not violating the Privacy Act or anything else, the department gives the text messages to members of the media. Here's the fun part about all this. Uh, Everything that I have told you uh, is totally public. That director of Office of Privacy has signed a sworn affidavit that's public. The IG report is public. Uh, the Department of Justice has filed a brief because Peter Strzok has sued the department for wrongful termination after the IG report you right. know, found what it found. So uh, all of this exists in the public record. And But
0: for some reason... the reason for I'm, reasons
1: unclear. Right. So I, the reason I'm bringing this up is just,
0: for, as listeners know, I've spent two years on this podcast not getting into the weeds of any of this stuff because I just was always going to wait to see what the Mueller report said, right? And I thought the speculation, one way or the other way, from the left and from the right, way got over its skis almost every single day, and I just was not going to get bogged down in it. But you work here, <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, uh, and there was a piece in the the Daily Beast? Yes. Yeah. Um, by Molly uh, Jungfast, where Lisa Page breaks her silence and basically just out of the blue calls you out.
1: Yeah. And what's, uh, you know, journalism ethics, maybe not 101, but like 104. Mm -hmm. Um, when the Daily Beast reached out to me, I got a text message that said, Hey, it was uh, the day after Thanksgiving, I think. Mm-hmm. Hey, do you want to talk about Lisa Page texts, etc.?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I I guess in, I don't know. I right. didn't, I not really think much about it. I actually get texts or phone calls like that from reporters. I got three others over Thanksgiving. Sure. Um, you know, hey, do you want to talk about some random thing? Right. And like, n- no, right. especially not like the intricacies of the details of the text messages. Um. So I just said no. At no point did they tell me that uh, I was being mentioned. There was a story that I was being mentioned in the story. Right. uh, That I was being accused of all sorts of picking which text messages to turn over. I didn't. That wasn't remotely whatever. Um, You know, in the public brief the DOJ has filed and the sworn affidavit that the office, the director of the Office of Privacy and Civil Liberties, my office isn't even mentioned. Mm -hmm. I'm not mentioned, et cetera. So. Uh, I have no idea why The Daily Beast did not look at any of those public records. Mm-hmm. I don't really know or
0: why they just simply didn't ask you to respond to a specific me. allegation right Where I could have
1: pointed to said public right. records. Uh, so I'm as confused as anyone. but uh-huh. but here we are and the IG report will come out in theory Monday.
0: Yeah. so uh, again, I don't want to dwell on this overly, and I am um, I am sure there are people listening to this, like they're monitoring broken code language between, you know, Berlin and Rome during World War II. Want to hear so much more about it? I just don't. But, <laughs> uh, um, do you have a theory why Lisa Page thinks that you are the Rosetta Stone, you are the grassy knoll, you are the person who is the the sinister villain in the story other than Donald Trump for her?
1: So after Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein, who was acting attorney general over Russia, as you know, I was by far the most visible person at the Department of Justice. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hardly a household name, but we have 120,000 employees at the department, and anytime they saw something in the newspaper, et cetera, my name was usually attached to it, and I'm sure they read a lot of those things. So that's my best Yeah. Yes, I don't actually. Well, we'll find out. (laughs) I've never met her. I've never interacted with her in any way.
0: Nor nor have I. Um, (laughs) Okay, so in general, what was your impression of Jeff Sessions? What was it like working for the Sessions Justice Department? just so you know, my wife worked for the Ashcroft Justice Department. She was the one who actually brought in the snakes for him to handle. <laughs> you um, know, I interned uh-huh.
1: uh, for the Office of Public Affairs during Ashcroft's time as Attorney General. Uh, Barbara Comstock. Oh, I think I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Barbara Comstock era turning into the Mark Corallo era. Uh-huh. That um, that was my tenure there. So, uh-huh. so, big fan of that, too. And we uh-huh. saw... Attorney General Ashcroft quite a bit during Uh my two years, the candlelight vigil that they do for fallen police officers Uh throughout the country uh, that is done, uh, at least he's one of the hosts of it, I think is the best way to describe it. Uh, We participated in that both years, so. Big fans, Uh big fans. My only interaction with Attorney General Ashcroft when I was an intern was I don't remember why, but somehow I have to bring up papers or something. And he was getting his lunch, and I remember being pretty struck by the fact that he brought his lunch every day, and it was like the saddest looking sandwich <laughs> that he, had been packed for him. I think.
0: <laughs> uh, we talked about this when my when my wife came on the podcast, um, but he fired his chef. Like like he was already declined to have a chef. Yes. A lot of cabinet agents, yes. cabinet heads can have chefs and private kitchens. He, he didn't want any of that. He served as much water as you wanted to drink at meetings otherwise it was it was, it was brown bag for everything. You know and, water um, isn't
1: free at the Department of Justice. we do we have water clubs we have to pay for that water. Is that right? Yes yeah, so, I did not know that. So uh, yeah the water the-
0: okay so I guess <laughs>
1: the be- taxpayer does not pay for my water
0: because I am a, of a legendarily uh, piercing intellect as an interviewer. I'm noticing that you've sidestepped the question of working for, <laughs> for Jeff Sessions. No, Sesings. no.
1: Um, you know, I think we spent two years in an interesting position, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: literally on Pennsylvania Avenue, in between the White House and Congress, mm-hmm. but also quite figuratively between those two. And because of that, we were in a bunker. Our team, you know, mm-hmm. together. And it makes me, um, it was just the most wonderful team of people to be in that bunker with. And the amount of trust you have to have in one another, you know, y'all saw this, like mm-hmm. the world is swirling, there's leaks and there's yeah. this and there's traitor, you know, <laughs> there's crazy stuff. And so to have um, a very close knit, small team that we spent, you know, endless hours together um it was a blessing
0: Uh uh-huh. okay yeah and and just to be clear when i was making fun of ashcroft that's me doing that my wife has a lot of respect for that uh <laughs> and I, I do too i you know i i i wouldn't want to go on a long road trip with him but
1: um <laughs> oh i mean i've done the equivalent now of many long road trips with uh with jeff sessions and uh-huh. Um, there's, you know, all sorts of fun Jeff Sessions trivia that we can, L- <laughs> can lot of A of, lot of heavy metal
0: blasting in the car. Yeah, kind of
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: Do you think that he regrets his tenure at
1: Justice? Not even a little. Yeah. No. Um,
0: do you think he regrets recusing himself? No. Yeah. I he didn't have he, a choice. I think he didn't have a choice either, and that's completely there's, forgotten by a lot of people. There's
1: one but... thing about Jeff Sessions that many people point out it, not just people close to him, That comes off right away. And um, he was an Eagle Scout, but it's also just, you know, when someone calls someone a Boy Scout, it's sort of derogatory. But, like, he actually just is. And um, you see it in all sorts of things. But one of them is the rule of law. That's a very Boy Scout thing to have, of, like, these are the rules, and I will follow all the rules. And so when you get to the Department of Justice and them's the rules, um, it wasn't even really... uh... It wasn't a hard decision because there wasn't much of a decision to make. Right. If you were involved in the campaign, you can't investigate the campaign. Yeah. Now, that doesn't come up that often because it is pretty frequent that an attorney general would be involved in a campaign. It's infrequent that the campaign would, would be, be investigated. investigated. Right,
0: right. All right. So is there anything else, any other searing grievance? <laughs> uh, since you have not really, you know, given us any really good gossipy, insidery stuff here.
1: Oh, man. Um, the, it's stuff i'll i'll keep thinking about the the grievance stuff i'm not a very uh grievancy person Uh um you know i have two cats Uh i know you also have cats but really the dogs get a lot more attention so if there's a grievance it's Uh probably more on that front Uh that i think there could be more cat content so maybe my grievance is just with you
0: yeah that's that's a dodge. This is, a, this is this is another, you know, justice department flack dodge, oh you know. God. There's a there's a, this is, this is this is borderline whataboutism, you know? <laughs> Um so uh uh I want to hear so you and and our friend David French, mm-hmm. uh colleague David French, are going to have your own podcast for mm-hmm. The Dispatch.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh
0: you've settled on a title?
1: I think we have settled on a title, Advisory Opinions. Uh
0: huh. Okay. And it's going to be mostly like law stuff?
1: Well, we want it to be... <laughs> David describes it as law and culture. Uh huh. Um, I think what David and I might define as culture could be pretty different. Uh-huh. So uh, that will be interesting. If you've been reading his newsletters, he has like a full newsletter on religion, whereas like I might have a full newsletter on what's streaming on Netflix. Uh-huh. I think... They're both culture.
0: Sure, sure. No, no he does too. He's, yeah. he's a pop culture guy. Um, I love David. David was my colleague at National Review. He's my colleague. We're delighted that he's here.
1: Sounded like a lot of wind up.
0: Yeah, no, oh, no, yeah. But I, and I've said this to his face many times. On any fundamental, moral, political, philosophical question, we almost always come down the same way on things. But when it comes to pop culture stuff... I'm astounded at how wrong he can be about so many things. It's very similar. Irving Kristol, who was one of my heroes, uh, father of Bill, um, was legendary for his insight and wisdom and and granular knowledge of not just like sort of history and intellectual and cultural stuff, but also like the finer elements of, of like of wisdom, of how, like, life really works and how society can't get beyond human nature and all these kinds of things. And then when it came to moving from these wholesale things to individual retail advice, one of the worst (laughs) givers of advice, career advice imaginable, he always gave people You
1: should definitely buy your wife that Peloton.
0: (laughs) Well, so, yeah, that was, was, you know, sort of getting there. So, like, um... uh, But so with David, just to wrap it up with David... uh, you know, David thinks like the Aquaman movie was great stuff. He's like, he's he's just wrong on, and he's, he's he he challenges conventional notions of physics about how much wrongness you can compact into just, a finite space. So you'll have lots to push off against. Yeah, fine. I mean,
1: it, you know, David and I have known each other uh-huh. for uh, several years, but. We're not hangout buddies. And so Mm -hmm. part of this, I think, on the cultural side especially, but the legal side to some extent too. It's going to be both, um, you know, two law nerds discussing the court or the IG report or anything else that's coming up, but then also two um, people who only kind of know each other discussing their cultural thoughts. Right. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. And getting to know one another's wrongness, which if that isn't the human experience, what is?
0: Cookies. And that's why I want to talk to you about Mrs. Fields. No, seriously, everyone is pro-cookie, which is why when time is short but the need to give gifts is high, the answer is the gift of cookies. And that's where Mrs. Fields comes in. When Debbie Fields started Mrs. Fields Cookies 40 years ago, she won over cookie lovers everywhere with her gooey chocolate chip cookies, melt-in-your-mouth brownies, and passion for sharing the joy of baked goods. Nowadays, you can have cookies sent right where you want them without visiting a bakery. With gourmet gift tins and baskets filled with fresh-baked cookies, you know that your order will arrive fresh and flavorful. It's true. We got a gift tin at uh, the Goldberg household, and it was uh, fantastic. I'm just sorry my daughter wasn't around to, or maybe I'm not, uh, to hoover them all down. Ordering is easy, and they can ship your cookies anywhere across the country if you're ordering as a gift, you can add a personal custom message, company logo, or family photo. Best of all, Mrs. Fields orders a 100% customer satisfaction guarantee. So to sweeten the deal, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you go to mrsfields.com and enter dingo. That's Mrs. Fields, M R S F I E L D S dot com, promo code DINGO. You get 20% off any gift at Mrs. Fields dot com, promo code DINGO. Mrs. Fields dot com, promo code DINGO. D I N G O. Your cookies are on the way. We thank Mrs. Fields for sponsoring this episode of The Remnant. Um. Okay, so you're pro cookie.
1: You have no idea, though. Like, okay. it's I'm more pro cookie than than we have time for to discuss okay. on this podcast. I'm pro Mrs. Fields, actually, in particular because in my high school, that was really the only non cafeteria food that you could get only certain times of the year, but they were fresh, in the, and they came in the little um, you know the little paper sleeve. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh huh. Uh huh. And they were a dollar. Yeah. Which was exorbitant to me, who then, did yeah. not have money. Uh-huh. Um, but. Like, no dollar I have maybe spent since was better spent <laughs> than That's... my daily da- Mrs. Fields cookie. See, this is great. I mean, I, <laughs> we're,
0: we're messing with the temporal uh, uh, time frame, timeline thing here because I recorded a podcast with Nick Gillespie from Reason yesterday, but it's going to air after this. And I asked him if he was pro... I said the one thing we could all agree on is we're all pro cookie or something like that. And he pushed back because he's like this non-carb vegan now what? or something <laughs> like that. And he started talking crap about Mrs. Fields cookies. And I was like, dude, what are you doing, you know? What? Um, but no. the exciting thing, and I hope the people, the good people from Mrs. Fields are listening. Um, and the, one of the reasons why I'm doing this ad now is because I didn't want that to be the only ad for Mrs. Fields, <laughs> even though they're only paying for one of these episodes. Uh, but like, I get, I get sample stuff for various podcast advertisers from time to time. And no, you got samples? They sent this great <gasps> Christmas tin. And it was like the first time my wife was truly all on board with all of this stuff. Because sometimes Wait, the we get stuff part, that she got no use for.
1: It'll turn out know. they actually didn't send money. They only sent cookies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the money part is is, is Toby's problem. Uh, all right, but anyway, so you brought up the Peloton thing. We, yeah. Uh, so uh, explain to listeners, this kind of blew up late in the day yesterday while I was uh, actually recording this podcast thing with Gillespie. So I came to it late. Um, but it really does seem like one of the better more amusing advertising screw-ups of late.
1: Well, I like I like moments of cultural zeitgeist that aren't political uh-huh. that we can all, you know, remember the what color is the dress I do. and and this is sort of that, but but made by Peloton to sell Pelotons. So the ad opens, I mean, you know what? I'm just going to plagiarize how someone else described it. Uh-huh. This is the harrowing story of a 116-pound woman who spends a year trying to become a 112-pound woman, <laughs> and uh, the, it ends. The ad ends with her saying she didn't know how much it would change her life, <laughs> uh, and. You know, it, for some reason, she's vlogging it through the year, yeah. and her husband gives it to her, you know, Christmas last year, and then Christmas this year, she sits down and makes him watch the vlog of her waking up at 5 in the morning yeah. to, to Peloton. I don't know if that's the verb. Um, now, on the one hand, brilliant ad by Peloton, because we are sitting here giving free advertisement to peloton on the other hand it touches on a lot of it touches on some feminism like why is the husband giving his wife exercise equipment you know is that is that something that you can really do and i'm reminded of the princess bride where he um The fiancé gets his Uh wife the wedding present, and she calls off the wedding and is crying to her father, Steve Martin, and he's like, what did he do? Did he cheat on you? Like, I'll go kill him. And she's like, no, he gave me a blender. Uh (laughs) This feels like the 2019 blender.
0: Yeah, except, and I I made an error like that once uh, for Christmas, (laughs) and I I, I still hear about it, but... um, you're not
1: going to tell us the air? No, 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 no. no I mean, there was no. a food
0: processor involved. Uh, but um, uh, the thing is, there is a kind of creepy wife-beater thing coming off the dude. Right? For he, sure.
1: And her he, looks into the camera, a yeah, little hostage take, like, yeah, please come get me.
0: It, it, there's a bit of a cry for help, blinking yeah. torture kind of thing. and. I guarantee you, Sarah Night Live is going to do a parody ad of it by, oh God, by yes. this weekend. And yes. if it I doesn't end so. with her burning his bed with him in it, I will be really <laughs> disappointed. But it is, it's its is—it's—it's—it's creepy because he does... It just seems like he's keeping her on a short leash. There's a little bit like a misery yes, reversal kind of thing. In or? the opening
1: of the ad, there's a child. We never see that child again. So maybe he's keeping her yeah. from her child. I, you know, there's... There's a lot going on in that family.
0: Maybe it's it's part of the larger Peloton breeder program. Um, and once, <laughs> once, once they, the kids are born, they harvest them for <laughs> organs and move on, you know. Uh,
1: the house is also quite sparse, which my husband, um, you know, he's anti-throw pillow. I don't know. I think that's a pretty normal gender divide in yep. this country on uh-huh. throw pillows. But there were no throw pillows. And so I think your theory about the husband being Controlling. Yeah, we're gonna type read a. into this marriage based on a thirty-second ad. Like yeah, 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 Really diagnose Esther Perel style. Yeah, everything that's going wrong in their sex life. Um, it needs some throat pillows.
0: Um, yeah, and no, I mean he he. It, it, he's, I would like to see the back of his hands to see if the knuckles aren't scabbed up. That's all I'm saying. Okay, who's he um,
1: voting for? Is that husband? That's a
0: like, good question. Because <laughs> I mean, like, he's not. He's not the stereotypical, deplorable wife-beater, right? He's more of the... No,
1: I think he's like an Elizabeth Warren voter.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like, he's like the the guy who has the torture dungeon in that, uh, what are those, uh, Woman with the Dragon Tattoo movies? Yeah. Right? Um, so he could be like a hardcore judge guy or something. <laughs> I mean, uh, keep his own demons oh, wait, at bay. Wait,
1: I have a grievance to share with you. Oh, this morning. So I um, worked on the Carly Fiorina campaign. Uh Uh-huh. And we had a female body woman for Uh Carly named Rebecca. She is a delight in every way. And this morning, I woke up to an NBC, you know, video journalism thing on Twitter about how amazing it is that Pete Buttigieg has a female body person because all candidates use male body people. Huh. And this is, like, the third time that something has happened where, like, we definitely did that in 2016. And, like, in 2020, they've discovered that, like, women are part of political campaigns on the, the 2020 Democratic That's field.
0: Weird. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's weird. So it's weird that you just bring this up, because I, I think you're willing to attest that we did not do a lot of planning for this podcast. Um,
1: <laughs> oh, I can't tell. <laughs>
0: um, I, so I did this event with Dan Crenshaw, the congressman, a couple of weeks ago yeah. at... And you're old stomping around, sort of, at Texas A and M. Um, sure, well, uh,
1: it's in the state.
0: Oh, I flew into Houston. That's why I. Oh, can't, so, okay. okay, yeah. And then uh, drove for a long time. That's uh, <laughs> true. <laughs> it's weird how Houston is the biggest, most serious airport I never go through because it's not a hub for any place except South America, as far as I can tell. And I'm not going to Peru a lot. Well, um,
1: maybe you should. Uh,
0: I have things in Peru I could be doing. We have be good doing.
1: restaurants in Bush Intercontinental.
0: Um, <laughs> okay, but anyway, so I was. uh at this Crenshaw thing, and Crenshaw had this whole group of campaign staff type people, nice bunch of people and there was one um blonde woman who clearly wasn't like a staffer, but she was following around and was like, "I don't think that's Crenshaw's wife, but i you know I, I did. you're just like, "Who is this person and it turned out that she's a Texas cop, and um apparently Crenshaw uh has there are a lot of people who come up and get in his personal space in creepy ways. And 90% of them are women. And apparently they are like, I don't want What wanna... a
1: problem to have.
0: Well, I mean, he's a married guy with little kids <laughs> and he's a politician. And it can be a problem. Yeah. And apparently this, this other lady from the campaign was telling me that uh, they tend to be uh, in a less enlightened time, one might say dressed like floozies. I don't know what the correct, uh, yeah. Okay. So
1: It does like an okay boomer term. That's yeah. like the no malarkey of.
0: I'm, i I'm pro no malarkey. But anyway, so, <laughs> uh, uh, and they found that having a woman escort, mm. no, uh, actually,
1: that makes a lot of crazy sense. ladies,
0: um, is better than having a man do it. And, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> and if only Gerald Ford had learned that lesson earlier. But anyway, that's a You've seen
1: the story. Keanu Reeves, um, when Keanu Reeves takes pictures. Like, this is pre-Me Too, really, or at least, you know, on the front end of it.
0: Pre-Me Too? Is this a movie about a premature <laughs> baby that goes on a killing
1: spree? <laughs> I'm sorry, Joan, are you aware of the Me Too movement?
0: <laughs> oh, pre-Me Too. I, I, I heard pre-Me Too. Uh, Pre-Me Too. Like, pre-Me One did yeah, okay yeah. in the box office, but it was a little I creepy just, with that...
1: tiny baby with a knife. We kept you in this room without windows for too long. It's
0: entirely possible. Uh,
1: So no, Keanu Reeves, when he takes pictures and puts his arms, you know, there's like two women standing on either side of him. Uh His hands are up open palm where you can see them above their shoulders. Yeah. (laughs) So that there can be no confusion about what Keanu was doing in that photo and there's proof and um, as as silly as it is, you know, I was like, damn right, Keanu. That's pretty smart. Yeah.
0: I I actually, like, I, 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 I think I'm on safe ground saying that I do fewer photo shoots than Keanu Reeve does. But I, every now yeah. and then I go to the... Like, on the old That's NR crazy. Cruises, I had to post... I had to do pictures of people a lot and...
1: A lot of, a lot of young women on the NR cruise.
0: I am not going to be <laughs> subscribed to this ageist stuff here. Um, at no, the Crenshaw tell, thing, too. Tell me
1: more about your paparazzi problems, and,
0: Jonah. Uh, no, no. But a lot of the time, they'll put their... Like, book signing stuff. Yeah. People... Uh, will, very nice, mature ladies will put their arms around my waist. I will not reciprocate, but I will put my hand, so it looks like a pic in the picture mm-hmm. that I've got my hand around them when really it's about a, a, a half a foot off their body, but you can't. But that
1: doesn't do you any good if in the photo it looks like you're touching. You see that,
0: like... Yeah, but I just don't want to touch these people. And and to me, it's more germaphobia.
1: Yeah, how very very Donald Trump of you, actually.
0: Or they'll misinterpret where I'm putting my hand in a bad way. I just don't want to have those problems. Um, uh, I like the... My my favorite thing to watch is politicians. And if you haven't noticed it before, you'll notice it a lot now. Certain politicians of a... uh, Moral majority kind of posture. When the cameras come out, they're always quick to put their cocktails down, so they're they're not seen, or they'll only drink cocktails that are uh, that look like they could be like Fresca. Could
1: be anything. <laughs> yeah,
0: because could
1: uh, be gin and tonic, could be sparkling water.
0: Um, okay, so this has been largely substance free, as far as I can tell. I mean, um, we really tried. Yeah, and. Um,
1: Made every effort to not talk about anything that could possibly interest anyone listening,
0: frankly. So uh, just as a sort of a – just a F you to the journalists who thought that they had gotten the substance-free substance of this podcast and have stopped listening, what do you think the IG report is going to have or how do you think it's going to play out?
1: I think that what we've seen so far in media reports about the IG report are people spinning in advance. Most, uh, well, anyone who is mentioned with derogatory information in any IG report gets an advanced ability to read it and mm-hmm. to comment. But more importantly— have you got an
0: advanced comp- copy? I
1: have not. Okay, that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but more importantly, they can go out and spin it in the media. So yeah. when you're reading news stories about what's going to be in the IG report, do read that with an eye towards knowing someone has done that in the hopes that, you know, the hey, look over here right. um, method is working. Horowitz, the inspector general, um, there are things to be critical uh, on Horowitz. However, he is... Um, Incredibly thorough. Mm-hmm. You know, if you remember when all of those text messages, there was a gap in the text messages. And my God, if he didn't go, like, find these phones in the bottom of some drawer that had been completely deleted and then found tech expert after tech expert to get the text fragments and then have people put together the text fragments. I mean, so that's, he's, um, he's meticulous. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not sure you'd want to, you know, uh, share dinner with him or something he might you know be very picky about bites and things but uh, but good for an inspector general he also um, is very good about <laughs> you can either see it as hitting both sides or telling both sides yeah um, I think that you will have both sides declare victory and by both sides you know for those who <laughs> the side being sort of the FBI um, Comey team the the DOJ team actually interestingly, right the the story and all of this is that they're kept in the dark for a lot of this by um, by the FBI team. So really like the FBI team on one side and the Trump team on the other side. I think both sides will declare victory, I think though if you go and read it, uh, both sides will get a mixed bag at best.
0: Mm-hmm. So where do you come down on? Right, so there's a. I wrote a column about this last week. There's a broad spectrum of views about the deep state. Mm. So on, on one extreme or one pole is, it's, to borrow a phrase, malarkey. There's no such thing, right? <laughs> and then those
1: floozies with their malarkey.
0: <laughs> um, uh, they show me too much of their gams. Anyway, so then there's um, you know the sort of standard you know conservative libertarian position, which is that the Sort of public choice theory, which is that bureaucracies can become their own factions, their own vested interests, and that yeah. sometimes they pursue things against the, the stated uh, agenda of politicians. But it's not a profound conspiracy thing. It's not Hydra, right? And then there's, um, and then there's the full-on hail Hydra deep state thing, where and these are the people who tend to email me in all caps, um, who tell me that there really is a fifth column. Working within the government, they have meetings, they have high signs, and all that kind of stuff.
1: That would be fun. Um,
0: Where do you come down on deep state-ism? Are you for it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have been trying to become a member of the deep state for so long, it's hard for me to even uh, answer that. No, uh, it's... uh, there is no one thing. Mm-hmm. Th- these are all individual actors with their individual motivations. I think that the Obama administration would tell you that they had enormous frustrations with the State Department, with a lot of, uh, probably with the Department of Justice. Um, maybe it's more hammer and nail. You know, like, let, let's take DOJ. DOJ, by and large, is made up of prosecutors. Mm-hmm. There's exceptions, but the vast majority are going to be prosecutors. So when you tell them that you don't want to prosecute criminals, these hammers are like, but nail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I could see that being very frustrating for uh, a Justice Department that wanted to change directions. Um, You know, if you want to change foreign policy, the State Department is an enormous bureaucracy filled with people who have ideas of what that should be, and they believe they have well-informed ideas, and they probably are well-informed ideas. So you know the Iran nuclear deal maybe didn't fit into everyone's um, informed ideas at the State Department during the Obama years. That's all to say I don't um, I don't think it's as partisan as people think it is. I think mm-hmm. it is expertise entrenchment, mm-hmm. and I think that the vast majority of not the vast maybe all uh, um, they they love their jobs and are doing them all for the right reasons. Mm-hmm it's like any of us, like you've been doing it for how long and you know so much. And then someone swoops in and is like, nah, I don't, I don't. (laughs) Uh, So, so I'm tough. It's tough. I'm sympathetic. I had career employees, about half of my office was career and Mm. half was political in public affairs. Um, And, uh, and they were fabulous. But I think this IG report and past IG reports will show that, career people were very suspicious of the political appointees. Mm -hmm. And that leads to problems. So the political appointees, it's circular, right? The career employees are suspicious of the political appointees and start cutting them out of stuff. Well, now the political appointees are suspicious of the career employees and start cutting them out of stuff before they can cut them, you know, the reverse out of stuff. And and around and around we go. I think it is also a separate point but maybe a far more important one because we've all been talking about deep state stuff when, in fact, the conversation we should be having is on civil service reform. Mm. Um, This, you know, we had a president shot, killed over this. uh, Great book about James Garfield, by the way, highly uh, can recommend. Um,
0: I was pretending to know which president you were talking about (laughs) until you said James Garfield. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Destiny
1: of the Republic. Uh uh, Fabulous Book if you like science and medicine and some political intrigue and, you know, a bullet going through the president.
0: Yeah, the doctors really messed him up, right? I mean, oh, 100% up. he yeah, would yeah, have lived. Yeah, the yeah,
1: the yeah. bullets back then were not doing great jobs. Yeah. Uh, the doctors, though, were doing really, really bad jobs. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, first African-American doctor to treat a United States president and... Uh, Thomas Edison's in it. Like, I don't want to ruin it. Uh-huh. But um, but it's a thriller.
0: Well, you already gave the spoiler. He died. So. He
1: does die at the end. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, uh, so remind me, what, was that about civil service reform? How did that have to do with Because all these reform?
1: guys wanted these jobs. And you used to go to the White House and meet with the president uh-huh. and uh, tell him what job you wanted. And then uh-huh. you'd get hired for, you know, postal serviceman number three mm. in, in Biloxi. So a crazy guy tried to get a job, and Garfield kind of blew him off. Uh And so there was a, where the portrait gallery is now on the mall, that used to be a train station, and Garfield was going to catch the train, and so the guy walked up to him and shot him. Because, you know, he needed that job.
0: I completely forgot that. Because it was all
1: spoil system. So the political machines, uh, then the president, spoil system. So instead, we um, institute civil service reform, uh, understandably so. Mm -hmm. But we might have swung the pendulum a little, a little far on that one.
0: Oh yeah, no. Look, I mean, uh, like, like. Uh, here's the problem for me as um, someone who hasn't changed a lot of their views on a lot of things in the Trump era. Um, I'm very much in the sort of. Philip Hamburger wrote a really great book called "Is It Is It Is Administrative Law Lawful?" Um, and
1: <laughs> as the Supreme Court will be grappling with. This year and the Soon. next few. yeah,
0: yeah, and um, I'm and and Charles Murray's "By the People" uh, or "For the People," I can't remember right now, which gets into this stuff too. I'm a big believer in that there is that 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 there are parts of the permanent bureaucracy and government that behave like an unaccountable government, and I've argued that for years. I believe it to be true. It's a it's it's a basic sort of public choice thing. I I, I think that. Um, uh, the way the administrative law courts work, I think, is an affront to the Constitution. I'm down with all of that. I'm all for civil service reform. Um, but to listen to some of my friends on Fox, you'd think that, you know, you'd be like trying to figure out why didn't, at this point, Lisa Page activate the cyanide pill in her false tooth because that's what the deep staters do to avoid being exposed right i mean the the way that this has become a conspiracy theory rather than a regulatory problem
1: um, <laughs> One is, is sexier than the other. Yeah,
0: one is definitely sexier than the other, and and frankly, I mean, I think it would be cool if we had like fifth columnists and you know and.
1: When we start talking non-delegation, doctrine, people start leaving the room, like it's not, it has not been my most effective cocktail.
0: Yeah, well, you, you should come to my cocktail parties, and uh, <laughs> it's um,
1: just me and the and the cat over in the corner, <laughs> and then you see. <laughs> no,
0: it's, it's actually you should come to my cigar shop sometime. It's always funny when, um, a a, lady. Comes into the cigar. He was going
1: to say floozy, guys. I no, saw it. No. I saw it forming. No, I'm no, kidding. but you know, it's like
0: <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what the appropriate, you know, because we don't have an HR shop here quite yet. Uh, but when a, an, a young, attractive woman comes in, or pretty much any woman, but really, any young, attractive <laughs> woman, all of these overweight, middle aged dudes who sit there smoking cigars. It's it's like a girl came into the locker room. <gasps> a girl, a girl, a girl, a girl. Um, and uh, it's actually a great great place. But anyway, um, how do we get on? So anyway, my point. My only point is is that, like. So, forget the deep state stuff, and forget your own burgeoning uh, tongue war with Lisa Page, which I can't wait to see how it plays out. Um, uh, how much of the stuff that in terms of the investigation of Donald Trump, do you do you ascribe to uh, human error forced by good intentions, general bureaucratic screw-ups, or nefarious conspiracy to do something horrible? Like, how, how do you score it?
1: This is why I'm glad that Michael Horowitz will be writing the report and not me. Uh-huh. Uh, because that's, that's literally the question he's trying to answer. Right. We know that we're screw-ups. Uh-huh. He's supposed to look into the motivations of those screw-ups. Um, it's why I put very little weight in the news reports so far. Uh-huh. And uh, I am loath to answer that question. When Clearly. We are so, <laughs> so close. So, so the, close. Yeah. Um,
0: You've managed to go this long without answering that question. Surely
1: I can make it another few minutes. Yeah. Um, okay. No, I'm, I, because I think it's hard. Yeah. And I think it's hard especially... Or not hard. I think it's stupid uh, for me to speculate on what I feel yeah. when there's a dude who has actual evidence. Um, because we're talking about people's lives and their careers and what I think of their motives. Uh-huh. Um, that's you know I don't I don't feel qualified to do that.
0: That's a very dispatchy answer. I like it. We we are not <laughs> in the business of uh, uh, winning the race to be wrong first. So.
1: The only thing that I will just underline emphasize is. I also, though, do not put stock in many of the news stories to date about what will be in the report.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's. Fair. Or that,
1: uh, that they're at least magnifying some things at the expense of other things. It's not that they're, the news stories are wrong, uh-huh. it's that uh, they're motivated. Sure. Not by the reporters, but by the, the sources
0: for the reporters. And the reporters who want to cultivate sources. Right, And that's sure. a big thing, too.
1: Oh, we can do a whole separate thing on um, my my thoughts on the state of journalism today.
0: We should. And we actually should have done that. Because um, <laughs> we were supposed to talk about, like, why you came to the dispatch, what your hopes, your dreams, your fears are. But we'll have to do that another time. Uh, Sarah, it's great to have you on board. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. And... Um, um. good luck with, you're going to be doing a bunch of podcast stuff for us, so good luck with all of it. But the first thing coming down the pike is this uh, um, David, David and, and I are going to do
1: all IG report, you know, all day Monday is our plan. Uh, yeah. We're just going to read it out loud. It's going to be like a dramatic.
0: I think that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you should do it in a Scottish accent. Um, so you got to work on that all the, weekend.
1: I went to Gettysburg for the 150th anniversary of the address, so uh-huh. I, I feel like it'll be like that.
0: Okay. Yeah. I
1: mean, that level of somber reflection.
0: I'll wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Izgrith, thank you so much. Uh, hope to have you back soon.